0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest. This week it's the turn of the singer-songwriter Thea Gilmore, um, because she's got lots on uh, this year at the autumn of um, winter of 2021. Two releases and a tour. Now the two releases I will give you some background to this She's released one album as Thea Gilmore called The Emancipation of Eva Grey and also she's got the tour which is starting at the end of September the 29th to be precise going right through to the middle of October but also she has another project and another side of her called after Light, and that release is also going to be coming out, I do believe, very soon, probably September in fact. So um, yes, After Light, for those who might be um, yes wondering what this is all about, this is her sort of recording, it's a slightly third person or another part of her. So you'll find out much more about this as the interview goes by, because um, as we were chatting at the beginning, and slowly getting to know each other to quote that famous song I was talking about Prince and the fact that he changed his name to I do believe a squiggle but then she's also done something similar and then I asked her to whether she could sort of unpack some of this um, curiosity and what was going on in her life because there is a lot so anyway, Thea tell us more, tell us now
1: another name yeah well yeah so there's a lot to unpack to be fair um, in all of that but yes I decided that I needed to um, just have a bit of a clean break from um, the Thea Gilmore name for various reasons Um, not least being that I I went through quite a, a big relationship split and it wasn't just a romantic relationship it was sort of my entire working relationship as well so it was very my name was very bound up with with that um, and I needed to create some distance so Afterlight was born from the um, just the, the, the need to step to one side for a bit and I don't know I guess just stand on my own, stand completely unsupported and see whether I could do it really <laughs> and, Yes,
0: uh, so because you, you sort of um, it was like were you about 18 when your first album sort of came out didn't it which was probably um,
1: God, no, yeah I so I I was 18 when it came out, um, so I was recording it when I was 17, and I did also put a single out when I was 16 years old. Um, if anyone's got that, they're better people than me because it's it's ancient now, just like <laughs> me. But, um, yeah, it, so, so you know, I started very young. I started doing, doing this very young, and I've been putting, you know, I think I can't even remember how many albums I've put out. I think this might be the 19th,
0: this one. Yes, something we quite drastic, actually, like that. Because yeah. you were born... <laughs> 1979. I'm just reading Wikipedia now. But um, so when when did you start finding yourself sort of being drawn to the world of, of sort of music? Because as I, I slightly mentioned earlier, I was born more in the 60s. So the 80s was kind of my decade. And there was kind of during that period, I fell in love with indie pop like the Smiths and all that kind of stuff but there was also the the three artists who came along in that time was kind of susan vega tracy chapman michelle shocked and they were right there and we sort of embraced them with great excitement as well as prince as well because we all wanted to get deep down and funky so you you sort of came along kind of more in the kind of 90s wasn't it were you were you from a musical household
1: i was from a household that loved music my dad was um he He would play lots of instruments, my mum loved music, um particularly classical music actually but um but the, I wouldn't say that we were a kind of we weren't the von trapps or anything but but we were kind of like we story. were all yeah <laughs> we were we were all sort of passionate music lovers, but but i it was it was probably more than that in a way in that we we all loved words and i think that was probably the thing that really hit me as a child is that all of us were very kind of engaged with writing um and and my whole introduction really into even beginning to think about music came from the lyrical side rather than the musical side. Music was a sort of was omnipresent and my dad was a massive Dylan fan and he was a massive Beatles fan so that stuff just you know he would buy lots of music and listen to lots of music and it was sort of always in the background but the words part of everything was was very much at the forefront and so that's how I started really was was kind of putting pen to paper as a Poet, or a you know a story writer rather than a songwriter, and I remember my dad talking to me and saying, "Well, you know, po- it's hard to be a poet these days. You should put some music to it." That's that's kind of like that's that's what all the cool kids are doing. Yes. <laughs> so I, kind of, I thought, well, maybe he's right. And yeah, I mean, I was growing up. My, I mean, so I, yes, I was born at the very end of '79. So my kind of very early years were spent in in the '80s. List, but but I, it, I was very uncool. You know, I listened to Paula Abdul and I listened to. What was that record Tarzan boy I remember that being figuring very highly in my, <laughs> in my musical upbringing uh, but I was also listening to you know bringing it all back home and I was also listening to Rubber Soul and and um so my musical education was quite diverse and uh and I think and then the 90s happened and you know the the kind of mid 90s when I everyone always says don't know that the ages between 14 and 16 are quite kind of formative and that was sort of exactly when Britpop was happening. Um, yes. And, you know that was that was quite a big deal for me I remember being it was very male centric though Britpop Um, there never felt like there was much room for women in there but still it was very engaging and very kind of exciting and it felt like it was something new even though I'm sure it didn't feel like that to people who are older than me but when you're 14 15 16 it's it's a big deal so so my musical tastes were very sort of broad reaching and very diverse yes. and completely really
0: because most people, when that, that kind of magic age, and you're right, I think the ages between 14, 16, possibly 18, are the kind of formative years. Because I suppose my two musical heroes, well, there's lots, but I mean, it's David Bowie and Lemmy from Motorhead. And I always remember they both used to say, you know, their, their main influence was Little Richard, was always their kind of yes. Mm. And because you can't be that age again, but that was the music that you brought up. And that was the moment we went, my God, that's, that's kind of a game changer. I want to be slightly Little Richard in a way so um so that was kind of big because I, I suppose with brit pop it did because during the 80s you know we had this sort of indie pop world i mean we had the mainstream charts and then there was the kind of the rave scene and then there was kind of Nevermind and the grunge scene and then brit pop brought it back to this kind of i suppose even though it was as you said it was quite male dominated god it was so male dominated apart from elastica and sleeper which was hmm. kind, of, kind of vaguely interesting but there was there was kind of you got that feeling, especially with Blur, they, they sort of tapped into that world that was the Kings, wasn't it? And I just wondered if you became a little bit more like, oh, yes, there is a sort of space here to, to write kind of quite figurative lyrics.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I remember um, discovering Alvis Costello when I was about, I think I was, I think it was just before I was 18 years old or maybe just after I found a copy of this year's model in a car boot sale. And I went home and listened to it, and it that was a real eye opener. But I think l- lyrically speaking, because I'd, I'd I'd had a real love affair with lyrics from the point that I listened to Dylan's "It's Alright Ma," and you know I, I've I say this a lot. Actually, I'm sure people will have heard me say this before, but I remember listening to the line "Money doesn't talk; it swears" as a really young kid, and thinking, "Oh my God, that's so powerful," because I understood it. I felt up until that point, I'd listened to lots of Dylan. And I, I kind of knew that he was smart and that what he was saying was interesting, but I didn't understand it because I was too young. But that line really, I suddenly really understood what he was trying to say. And kind—and that it was a real sort of kick in the nuts, the sort of power of that, a phrase like that and, and how I could relate to it. And so then when I later on started listening to this year's model, started listening to Elvis Costello, way that he used lyrics and how, how i was just so impressed by how incredibly english he was i loved that i loved how how sort of you know he would he would the way that he used words was very very english and 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 it it, it suddenly felt like yeah that you can do things in a different way he made yes up.
0: he did and if you fast forward elvis's career to the mid 80s he did an album called blood and chocolate and he did a epic song which goes on for six minutes I want you I mean what have you sort of heard that song
1: I have heard that song it's not one I know really really well um I know that album a little um but yes I've 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 I mean I've I've heard most of his stuff but I this year's model is the one that sticks with me always
0: yes I suppose it's just because there's such a bitterness about an emotional sort of anger within that track itself which kind of goes on and on and he's kind of got this very chiming guitar and I just wondered if those kind of because I always loved Joni Mitchell because she was able to put kind of complex kind of emotional state into kind of like wow that's amazing English you know which is it's not too wordy and it's actually kind of like oh yeah you cut through it and somehow can put a lot I must admit I love the other band I used to love was the Carpenters because they again put amazing emotional states into sort of quite you know, easy pop. And I just wondered how over those decades, because you sort of, you know, from Burning Dorothy, were bringing out kind of almost an album maybe the other year, weren't you? So that was, a, that was quite a lot of kind of material and also change because obviously being 18 or 17 and then sort of going through the decades and all the different things that happened, it must have kind of influences on sort of how you start wanting to write and how you want to start to change yourself as an artist.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think in the early days, I was, because I was listening to Costello and I was listening to Dylan, I I think I always had this thing in my head, it was kind of like the more words I could use, the better, almost, I I would, you know, it felt like somehow I was doing my job more if I could crowbar more syllables into a line. And then as I got older, I sort of, you know, I started to listen listen to Randy Newman and I started to listen to a bit of John Hyatt as well. And I suddenly realised actually the kind of brevity of what they wrote was, was the real power of it, the real beauty of it, was being able to convey an emotion in a few words was quite an extraordinary talent. So I, I maybe started to try and do that a bit more. And I never really lost the wordy stuff because it's what I, you know, the really kind of like... I suppose metaphor is what I love more than anything kind of but but I do also have such time for people who use few words to to just rip your heart out
0: yes there is something about um I say goodbye to love. No one seems to care if I live or die by The Carpenters. I always just think, you know, if you liked that when you were sort of 10, like I did, you're bound to like Joy Division and The Smiths later on in life. <laughs> so we coming sort of full circle because it's kind of interesting because in the last kind of week, Lydia Allen's bringing an album out, which is kind of going to name and and talk about her life in music and all the things that's happened, which is going to be an interesting legal case. I mean, when you were bringing these two albums out, After Life and The Emancipation of... Eva Gray. How, do you, how did you kind of separate the two processes of bringing two albums out, but one, you know, with two different characters?
1: So that, it, that kind of happened really naturally. Um, the Emancipation of Eva Gray was a, was a very odd, um, that album came out in a really, really weird way in that I was asked to write um, a couple of tracks for a remake of Blythe Spirit, the old, um, well, Noel Coward play but then obviously it was made into a film and they they remade it with Judy Dench and Isla Fisher and they wanted some songs to go with it and obviously it's set in you know it's set in in the 30s so in the jazz era which I've always loved music from that era um and I've always loved the way that Cole Porter was writing songs in that era and I him as a lyricist in general actually I just think is I think he's extraordinary and bitchy and I've always I've always loved that um so I kind of got really heavily involved in writing songs for that film. I was—I think they only wanted two, but I started writing them with a, with a guy who I've known for years, but I've never actually co-written with. And we just got overexcited because he loves that style of music too. And we kind of, where we were supposed to write two songs, we ended up writing a whole album. So right. two of the songs went on the soundtrack for Blythe Spirit, but we ended up with this full album. And... Because it was, you know, that was happening at a really tricky time in my life. I'd, lit- I think, I think I got that that gig maybe a month after I I called time on my marriage, and it was a beautiful bit of escapism because it was a it was a project that I didn't have to be me in. I could be someone else, which was lovely. And as anybody who's been through a marriage breakdown will know, if there's anything you can do to just remove yourself from your state, um, it, it's really it's really helpful. And it was really helpful. But I became aware as I was writing the songs, that actually, whilst I was technically writing as somebody else, I was technically also writing my story and all of the stuff that had happened to me just through another person's voice, which I, you know, I, I still can find some humour in it all. And I found it quite amusing. Um, and also she was the character that I was writing through, Eva Gray. She was so bolshy and so kind of fiery and... um she was saying things that I probably didn't have the guts to say. And I loved that too. And somehow because there was that distance, it was all right. And also she kind of came out the other end and was having fun. And I liked that as well. I, I wrote her trajectory as a good one. Um, so it, there's a lot of hope in that record.
0: Yes. Because one, one of the tricky things, oh God, i sorry, I cut you off there, is of that, that kind of taking that moment of not wanting to feel like a victim. Did you have to sort of work with those kind of, Feelings and states of mind.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I always think victim's is a really strange word, and it's it's um, it's very loaded. The word "victim." Um, and I'm i I've throughout this whole process, I've been really aware that my story is is very much, it's a very quiet, very small story. Um, that is not dramatic. As soon as you use words like, um like victim or like abuse or like trauma it sounds very dramatic and very kind of like cinematic somehow and and the whole point about all of what I'm trying to talk about at the moment um is that is that very often what what you're experiencing is not dramatic and and sometimes if if you're if if you don't have a conversation with yourself you can you can sort of Almost ignore the stuff that's going on in your life, which is what I did for twenty three years, or you know, near on, um, and and it's it's really quite dangerous. And so, I don't know about victim. I think it's um, I think it's just a, it's all a process. So I, I yes. struggle with the victim.
0: Yes, I I understand. I suppose I I sort of realise that in life there's been one or two moments which kind of were really upsetting and, you know, lots of sleepless nights and just not being able to think about anything else apart from and then sort of having to do that processing, and then taking, I suppose I found it was taking a bit more responsibility and thinking well I made that choice to do that and I made that choice and that resulted in this which has been really upsetting and then I felt a little bit more like I could let go, I know this sounds a bit like a you know, bit, bit much but I suppose that's the kind of, I know what you mean because there's kind of, um, you know some of those words were a bit loaded and and sound like oh my god there's going to be this huge tsunami coming but it's like not really it's just kind of moments of just taking yeah just thinking well yeah I I sort of I let things go I let things slip and I then one day it all was just too much and then I had to say no this is the end to quote Jim Morrison.
1: Yes absolutely yeah and I I also worry slightly particularly again with my story and and it being such a quiet and I mean effectively we're talking about coercive control here Um, and it it, it, that is a very quiet disease really um, in people's lives it happens very slowly it's Somebody mentioned the analogy of the boiling frog. I don't know if you know that. The yes. That cold water and boil it slowly and it doesn't know it's being boiled. And that's, that's a very, very true analogy. Um, but I also worry a bit that, you know, there are people who are true victims of, you know, horrendous, horrendous abuse that I would hate to feel like I was in some way taking away from their story with mine, if that makes sense. I don't know. Maybe that doesn't make sense, but I, but almost like by calling yourself a victim in a in a quiet story like this somehow you're you're taking away some of the z- severity of somebody else's story and i would hate that
0: because... yes no i completely understand it's it's a bit like yeah yeah you, you can't grade it but i know what you you know i kind of understand so then why why did you then sort of feel the need to say that was? gilmore Now, this is going to be afterlife. When did that sort of time or moment come? Did it? Was it like a a, a kind of a flash, or or coming and waking up one morning, thinking that's it? I
1: think it was. No, it was fairly. It was a fairly slow process. The the afterlife album was born out of out of the fact that I have a Patreon site, and so I deliver music on a monthly basis to to my patrons. Um, and that was a really uh, sort of that was a really orga- that was an organic process it Was all that was almost like therapy really so i was delivering a song to them that was kind of just coming out of my whatever i was going through at that, at that particular point in time and i was delivering it to them and very often i was just then forgetting about it and wouldn't wouldn't listen to it and gradually over that time i was sort of thinking every time i kind of bring up my name or or someone talks about me in public or uses the name it's always associated with my ex and that that was making me more and more uncomfortable as time went on and as sort of slow realizations of of things that had been happening and stuff that had been going on in my life and stuff that he'd been doing were coming I, I wanted to distance myself from him more and more and it was very hard to do that and still operate under my name but more than that I I also you know I don't I, I genuinely don't want to cause anybody any pain. I think there are important issues that need talking about around, around coercion and around this sort of behavior, but I'm not out to, to kind of, oh, I don't know. I, I'm not out to, for revenge. I, and so I wanted to distance myself. Obviously people can Google and they know, you know, there's so many people who know my name and know who I'm talking about, but I won't use my ex's name um, because it's not really, this isn't really his story. Mm. So the name Afterlight was just another layer of of kind of distance, I suppose, to to, it sounds a bit weird, but in a way almost protect him as well, because I I don't I don't want to hurt. I don't want to do damage. But these things that happened and these things that he did were very, very serious. and, And actually, I think they do need talking about
0: yes absolutely so does that mean because you've got a tour coming up and then obviously the rest of your life does that mean what will you do with your material and body of work that you've created so far
1: I don't know I mean it it is out there and I'm proud of it I'm proud of what my name has achieved as well you know my my real name but um and I'm not saying I'll never use it again either but but I I need at this point in my life I just need a uh, uh, the ability to step back from the Thea Gilmore name and be something else for a while and see whether that's, you know, see where that takes me, I suppose. And it may well take me nowhere, but this record specifically, it couldn't have come out under my name. It would have felt completely wrong. Um, So maybe it will be the only record that I make as Afterlight, I don't know. Or maybe every record in the future as Afterlight. But as far as the back catalogue as Thea Gilmore is concerned, you know, that I can hear... Um, elements of it that you know there's quite there are quite dark undertones to some of it and there's a lot of you know there was a lot of manipulation there was a lot of control in in some of that music that I made but there's also an awful lot of me as well so there's so it's it's all it has with all things like this it's very there are a lot of grey areas and it's very there are very mixed emotions within it all
0: yes because the first I don't know if it's the first thing but it's the first one I heard which is the of all the violence I have known and that's a really really stark um kind of uh, song and very sort of blunt not blunt but it's kind of like whoa that's quite amazing and the video is phenomenal and then um the next one which is um little heart attack is it's, it's kind of a much more sort of back onto sort of common ground isn't it so does that mean the album is quite it's, it's, quite, it's quite, quite, quite actually that's only two tracks i've heard so is it quite a varied album
1: uh, you know, I find it really hard to get any sense of distance from my own work and, and tell you the answer to that properly. It's really funny. It's good because I'm so inside it. I don't I'm, I'm not sure I've been able to listen to it as a whole kind of thing in the way that somebody else would listen to it and say whether it's varied or not. There, there are, are two poems on the record, um, one at the top and one at the bottom, and they very much bookend the kind of the music part in the middle. Um, is it fair yeah. I suppose it probably is. I mean, it feels very different to me because it's the first record that I've ever, you know, almost every instrument was played by me. It was produced by me. It, I totally took the reins and controlled the whole process, which is the first, you know, after, even after 19 albums, this is the first time that this, that I've made a record that from start to finish is all me, is all about me. And it's dark, you know, it's got a very dark kind of side to it but that but there is also hope towards the end you know it's followed very definitely follows a a story arc um and there is real kind of well at least I hope so there's real uh promise I think at the end.
0: With these two albums it sounds like they both they felt like as a creative process quite uh kind of um did you feel quite free from the past doing these because you were working with different people or working on your own? But obviously with this this um after light, not after life, as I probably said earlier. <laughs> um you know you obviously work with creative people creating the videos and and putting those together I'm assuming that by the way you might be a video expert as well but it did have a quite an amazing production um so yes I just wondered you did you feel quite excited by it because I you know as I mentioned very much earlier David Bowie would be one of my heroes and he was seemed to always be able to sort of get together a little band of people not little but you know quite amazing musicians and they go right that's fine I'll have another little group that's fine and you know not in a nasty way but he just kind of worked through it I just wondered if you kind of felt quite you know like oh that was a really nice experience that was a very different kind of um, process to the last 18 albums
1: yeah hugely I'm yes with the emancipation of Eva Gray it was this absolute sense of of incredible freedom and being able to work with amazingly talented people who um had no agenda there was no agenda apart from they just wanted to make a really good record and that's a that's a that was a lovely feeling and it was and because of the type of music it was because it was that jazz era sort of very happy upbeat um you know, it's a 10 piece band. It was really joyous. It was really, I mean, I feel so incredibly lucky that I got to make that and make it with the people that I made it with, because it was just, I mean, it was, it was, it was like an injection of joy, that mm. record. Um, with Afterlight, yes, I did. There was, a, there was unbelievable freedom, but with that, because it was all down to me, there was also incredible fear. I didn't know. And I think you can hear that in that album. You can hear there's a sort of, it's very, um, I think you can hear the, the shaking in it. And I kind of, you know, I think that's, there's there's a real truth and a real honesty in that. And I like the fact that that's there, but I, you know, I I mean, I would step into the studio and suddenly be aware that I had never, ever been in the studio on my own. You know, mm. I I I would record, I could record at home on my own and that's fine, but actually working within a recording studio I'd always been guided by someone or you know I'd always been produced by my ex or uh, and I and I'd never actually sort of given myself permission to sit down and play a guitar in the way that I play a guitar and and it be that be enough because there's always someone standing next to me who can do it 10 times better but that's not always the right thing it's not always the right way to play it you know I'm I'm not somebody who is interested in being a virtuoso musician It's it's you know there are people out there who will always be better than me, and that is fine. I'm yes. not, but what has always mattered to me is is making honest music. Um And for the first time, I was actually able to say, "Well, actually, the most honest thing is for you to pick up a guitar and you play this. You play the bass. You play the keyboard. No, you're not. You know, Tori Amos. But but actually, that doesn't matter. Yeah.
0: It well, it's interesting because when. Uh David Bowie did his album, which had boys keep swinging, because it sounded too good. He got everybody to just get their instrument and move it one step on, so they all played somebody else's instrument to make it sound much more kind of oh, that's better. You know, it was just like sounded too smooth, and it's kind of interesting hearing that out track again and thinking oh, right, they all sort of just swapped instruments. Obviously, they were still competent, but not. It had a different vibe to it, which was which was kind of an interesting process. And I could imagine that kind of also can feel quite quite liberating as well because because yeah. when I saw you many years ago doing your Christmas album um it was kind of an interesting prose you know it was just an amazing kind of evening and, and stuff like that and I sort of obviously sort of followed bits of your career here and there you know and, and there were times when I remember you once or twice mentioned you know things that would happen to you in the live arena I remember once you seen some tweet I think and you had a really uncomfortable experience with a fan who got themselves too close I mean how do you? I mean, that just boggles me, really. Thinking, God, I didn't realise a Thea Gilmore fan was like that at all. I thought they were much more like me, who just wanted a nice seat and, and and polite applause. But how do you know? I mean, dealing with that side of life must at times be so exhausting as well.
1: It's a really funny thing. Yeah, I mean, that was that was a fairly horrible experience. Um, of, of, I mean. <laughs> again it's, it's so easy to reduce things like this and go oh well it was brief and it was it was a very brief moment but it was effective it was sexual assault that's what it was um yeah so you, you know i think it's helpful to use names of these things and i'm trying to do that more and more um my the thing is that's you are aware that that stuff happens and it exists it's happened plenty to me it happens plenty to to lots of people not just women but obviously predominantly women um and The thing that I was most interested in actually when that happened was my own response. And but that happened, you know, after I had split up from my husband, I was, I was going through therapy at the time and was beginning to see that I'd been in what is, again, I hesitate to use this word because I hate this word because it sounds dramatic and it wasn't, but an abusive relationship. That's what I was in. Mm -hmm. And, And so I was, because I was kind of talking about this stuff, um, to a therapist i was constantly questioning my responses and my behavior to things um which is uh, anyone who's been through therapy knows that that tends tends to be what what happens um is that you're co- you sort of start to view yourself almost as a third person and it's like why are you behaving like that what's why is that your response and my response to that particular incident was i did nothing and that really shocked me i did i just stood there i was i was standing I was signing albums I was, and there was a huge queue of people waiting to get their records signed and um, this particular guy asked for a photograph and, and I was in the middle and his wife was on one side and he was on the other side and because we had our backs to a wall no one could see what was going on and, and, and I, my initial thought was don't make a fuss, don't make a fuss because his wife's standing there and what's she going to think and that was my, my feeling was protect her and it's always about protecting somebody and I was like god you've been doing this your whole life just just like don't make a fuss don't say anything it's all fine it'll, it'll be over in a minute and that really shocked me because I thought I was tougher than that and I, mm. I and it's not that it's not tough I don't want anyone to think that like saying nothing is wrong it's just it was just a surprising response yeah for me so yeah then I did I I because I was, I was cross with myself. I had a, re- I was really angry with myself because what I sh- wanted to think I would do is, is, you know, either shout really loudly about it or punch him. Mm. And I did I you mean, sort of, Did laughing? you have
0: one of those moments where you thought, what would mean Greer have done in that moment?
1: I didn't, but I'd like to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, just, yeah. yeah.
0: It is, yeah, I know, these things, I'm always kind of, when when I hear those conversations, people say, oh, if I have that situation, I know that I'm just like, oh, okay, I'm just a bit timid, so I'll just run, you know, just, they might hit harder than me, so I'm just going to walk away quickly. So, yeah, it it must be, yeah, it must be a horrible thing to be put in that and feel kind of so exposed and so manipulated at the same time, which obviously does kind of happen in the world that is kind of showbiz. I mean, with, with your sort of, live performance and, and over the years, I noticed that you've, you've had your own record label and then you had an experience with Sanctuary Records for, was it one album?
1: Yeah, one one album. Yeah. What
0: was that kind of experience like? And I mean, I just wonder how you reflect on looking back at that when you signed for them. Was it a case that you just had, had felt like you had come to a crossroads or did you just feel that you wanted to experiment with something slightly different?
1: That was a really f- Funny um, little period in my career, actually, because a lot of things sort of happened at once. The sanctuary just approached me. Actually, they wanted to sign me. There was one particular guy who worked there who I think had been a, a fan for a while, and then he moved to Sanctuary, and he was he sort of was given the green light to to sign acts that he liked and thought had potential, and I was one of them. Um, but basically, in between making the record and the record coming out um sanctuary actually went into administration i think um which completely changed all of the the sort of release schedules and the way that they were able to release music and i also got pregnant so um the all of a sudden this kind of record that was going to be a big release and it was going to have a massive spend behind it and it was it was you know it was Big news suddenly became ah okay so the record label's gone bump and and you are gonna have a bump by the time the album comes out you know and it was my first child and everyone basically told me that that my career was over you know I went through so many conversations with manager um not so much the label actually funnily enough because again the guy that signed me was 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 quite a progressive soul and so he wasn't he he wasn't that troubled he was also considerably sort of older and and wiser and had seen it all before so he wasn't that troubled by it but my my manager absolutely hit the roof couldn't you know it was and i thought my career was over as well but when when i was pregnant i thought this is it i, I you know this this album will be my last album as it turned out it everything's got more successful rather than less successful post child but i think that was probably just because i got really tenacious and just tried harder because i had a mouth to feed all of a sudden
0: yes because he's got it one thing i've noticed over the decades obviously you know having you know friends my own age and um the the difficulty and that no one's ever spoke about really in, in the world that is music because mostly you know it's it's men isn't it and bands with men and then the odd female artist who just disappears but you know the thing with having a, a, a recording creative career having children having that time off And I remember listening to Suzanne Vega recently in an interview where she went on tour with her first child. This is probably the late 80s. And just saying the whole tour was a nightmare. You know, you're trying to feed this baby. You're trying to sort of look at, you know, plug sockets around your different places in Europe, you know, just going on stage feeling like I'm really frazzled here. And then, you know, with later life, you know, everything changes again and there's menopause. I mean. You know all these things that have never ever been mentioned, but obviously people are sticking with music much longer and 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 the same look i'm going to have I want to balance that family and child, and then i you know also things do happen, and that's just life i mean for yourself, i mean how you know when you look back at your 17 18 year old self there must be so much that have changed, and at the same time so much that hasn't been spoken about as well
1: yeah, loads i mean having i I recognize that having babies on tour scenario because I was well I was touring when I was eight months pregnant and then I was back on the road again when my baby was three months old so I didn't really stop there was no break for me and I think that's really common you know not just in music but in any woman who's self-employed the idea of taking any kind of maternity leave is you know for a lot of people it's just not doable um but in, in another way you know I feel really lucky because I I got to spend the most incredible amount of time with my kid. Yes, I was working in yet yeah, absolutely friesy brain. I mean, the, uh, I was also, because I'm not, you know, a, I'm not Suzanne Vega. I, I didn't have, you know, I didn't have the money to pay a tour manager or a massive tour bus company. So I would, very often I was doing a lot of the driving as well. So I would, you know, be up with the baby, I'd drive to the show, I'd do the gig. I'd, and, and it was a fact, basically the baby was like a rugby ball. He would be sort of, tossed around whoever was was around at the moment and whoever wasn't actually actively having to either be on stage or do the merch desk or whatever and he as a result is the most incredibly well-rounded human being you could meet he's he's extraordinary both of both of my kids have been around music and you know have have seen the, i guess the really unglamorous side of the music business and so they are not remotely troubled by you know they think music's great they love music they're both musicians but they they have no starry eyes about it. They're not remotely impressed by fame in any way. It's just like, well, yeah, but we know go, what goes on behind the scenes, and it's not pretty. So, um, so I, yeah, I mean, there, there is a lot that doesn't get talked about, particularly the sort of female stories in in music, and the majority of it's deeply unglamorous.
0: Yes. And it, 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 yes. It, well, as most people have said, you know, who with you know, whatever gender it is like there's eight hours or 10 hours of really struggling and then 90 minutes on stage, which is great fun, you know, during the tour, you know, it's like just no one gets to that point where they go, I'm really enjoying the tour, Van, you know, I'm just spending lots of time with these people in a closed you know, environment. I mean, no one's ever said that in their life, you know, they're just kind of biting their tongue going, God, I wish I was a solo artist, you know, I really can't bear my bass player anymore. So um, it is kind of, it is kind of strange, but I just kind of also realize and it is kind of interesting with suzanne vega you know she was saying that yes there was all this money when she first started because she had the hits and she managed to buy one flat but then since then it's like you know it's back to you know slugging it all out and feeling quite lonely and going backstage and seeing some rather crappy little sandwiches and a you know and a bottle of water going my god no one sees this side as you're sort of in manchester on a wet kind of wednesday afternoon in the middle of november you know that's kind of hard work isn't it yes, and they're going yes. to want to hear tom's diner and you know yes. and luca uh, otherwise i won't be able to leave and it is kind of like that that because i was wondering on that side when you do an album is it a bit like the, the Vegas thing that you think god i've had to Not gamble, but invest in this. I do need to see this. I need to sell this, this amount of tickets and merchandising. I just wondered if you just often find yourself thinking, "I've almost got into the black. Now gone straight into the red for the next album."
1: I, I. So one of the great things about making this record is, for the first time, I didn't think about anything apart from just the music, just making the music. well no that's not for the first time I think when I first started out I didn't think about anything apart from just making the music either but then gradually as your career builds and you start to a picture starts to evolve suddenly you do have to start thinking about will this get radio play you know who's going to like this are the people who like that particular song on that particular record are they going to like this because they're the ones that buy the album and I don't know I think you can really you can really tie yourself up in knots. That way madness lies, I think, because ultimately you can pitch to people that you think have liked your stuff in the past or pitch, pitch to radio stations that you think have liked your stuff in the past and you can still miss. Mm. And I always hated, this was something that, that, you know, I did, I, I kind of did all the time and, and actually my, my ex would do um, a lot, was, was kind of like write a song for radio which is kind of weird thing to even think you can do,
0: yeah. because
1: radio changes all the time, the people who work at, at Radio Change all the time, and it's, it it just doesn't work, and I always hated it, I always felt dirty when, when we did that, not because I didn't want to be on the radio, I love the radio, but because it felt so dishonest, it felt like you were kind of contorting yourself into some shape that that you thought, it felt like Doing plastic surgery on your music just because it might turn somebody's head, and and I never liked that. Although arguably my ex was very good at, at turning heads in the radio, so you know kudos to him for that. But but um, it was just never me. I, I don't think I'm naturally somebody who um, writes super commercial music, and 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 so with Afterlight, I kind of brought it back into the fold, I suppose. And and it's it's sort of it just. I'm just writing it for me, and I think, I think really, ultimately, that's the only thing you can do. I try really hard not to think about will it sell. I'm, mm. I'm also incredibly lucky again because I have a patron website that that it that pays my bills. those people, those absolute sort of super, I don't even like the word fan because it makes this it sound like. There's distance between us. I, I pref- I, they're a family, and they are absolutely extraordinary. And they are, they literally, between them, make sure that I can put food on the table. And so, I, and they are a safety net as well. You know, if my record doesn't sell, I know that I have an income from them because because they want to see me make another one. And that's that's an extraordinary feeling. It's and that free they give me a freedom that I don't think I've ever had before in my whole career. And that's beautiful. Such a gift
0: yes it's interesting that creative process and thinking you're going to try and write a hit because mostly the hits that you you know so-called hits well the ones that we realise probably when they were recording them they would have had no idea you know it was like oh well we've got 10 more minutes we might as well just bang out one more record and it's like the one that works and it's like god i didn't realize that would be the one that works and talking to a lot of producers they can never tell which one's going to be like oh wow that's that's amazing I don't God my mind's gone blank. But I did recall I did do an interview with someone recently who'd worked on oh, it was Chris Spedding who'd worked on millions records. And I said, you know, like Harry Nielsen and Joan um, trade in and, and you know he's got a phenomenal CV and I said did you know when you were recording them you know they were going to be such kind of iconic songs he says no not at all but the ones I thought were going to be really good were the ones that really bombed <laughs> it's like I can't see so yeah. you know I can't live without with, with like, if living is without you you just had no idea that was going to be the the track that would be with us until the planet kind of completely blows up and it's like no not at all it's just like oh well we've done that it sounds all right whatever because interesting enough on that creative process and vaguely that was my thought when you were talking about that was that it was interesting the artists who had been sort of big in the sort of before that the 80s okay like um david bowie and rod stewart and Robert Plant. Say, a lot of those artists when they got to the eighties seem to be really lost, and they try to say, "Oh, what's what's kind of hit? You know, what what's kind of happening at the moment? What who's the producer that we need?" And the, their work in the eighties is like, "Oh, that was painful, wasn't it?" You went back, then they kind of went back to, "This is what we're really good at, and we're not going to try and get on Radio Two anymore because frankly, we're a bit old for that." So it, it's kind of interesting as a great, you know. I would imagine, because I'm not a creative artist, but trying to to have the hit, you can sort of end up sounding like, you know, one of those kind of artists who you say like, actually the, it's kind of been and you're slightly running, you know, you should be at the forefront more than the chase and the latest, you know, Trevor Horn production sound that we loved in the '80s.
1: <laughs> no, I agree, and but I mean, I th- I think things have changed quite a lot, though. I think that. um I think you can hear now when big artists are it's it's almost formulaic the way that they will create a hit and 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 it it is a hit but ultimately I think the, the songs the tunes that really stay with people are the ones that just come from completely left field that you're just not expecting they come out of nowhere and they grab you by the throat and then they they leave you with an indelible mark the the stuff there's plenty of kind of you know music out there that has been created to 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 make an impact on the radio and it does that but I don't think it's the stuff that really speaks to people I think the stuff that really speaks to people always always comes from you know from truth from honesty and generally speaking from three or fewer uh voices you know I, I don't buy into this kind of the hit makers that that there are sort of 25 names co-writing names on a record i don't think that that works generally speaking well it works but i don't think that it's what people respond to yes very often.
0: I, I think uh, <clears throat> i think that can work on a, those club records because there seems to oh, work yeah, that's, <clears throat> yeah but that's a different thing but i think when when you hear some of those kind of very iconic ones you know <laughs> let's mention susan veits susan vey you know it's like luca and tom's diner you know you would have just never thought that's a hit mate. I'm retiring now. We we are sorted. You'd have thought you oh, know no, this is a disaster. This is a disaster. So look, going going sort of slightly forward, you've got a talk coming up next month, and this is as Thea Gilmore. Does this mean that you've, you know, you've got a huge set list, haven't you? I mean, with your, you know, your your it's called them family no that sounds like Charles Manson Call on fans um, that's better isn't it um, with your fans I mean do you have a kind of a, a bit of a thing about trying to work out which you know ones that they particularly want to hear or do you just think, look, this is mostly the new album
1: um, again no I, I well so this is an interesting tour for me. this is a terrifying tour for me if I'm being really honest because you know I've been doing this since I was sixteen years old i'm forty one now and I've played the grand total of one gig on my own one in all that time and this is an entire tour completely on my own there'll be nobody else on stage with me just me um and so I am trying to see what I'm capable of it 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 was a strange tour anyway I I booked this tour in 2019 it was originally meant to be in uh, you know uh, I was meant to be touring in 2020 and then obviously COVID happened. I deliberately booked myself into smaller venues. I avoided all of the big territories, if you like, the kind of Manchester's and the Liverpool's because I, I wanted to know whether I could do it. I wanted to know whether I could hold an audience, just me. Um, And then obviously COVID happened. And all of a sudden this little tour that I booked as a kind of like almost a small experiment has become a tour in support of two new albums, which nobody really expected. Um, But it's, it's really exciting. So I'm, I'm, so a lot of the decisions I'm making about tracks that I play is is based on what I feel I can deliver to an audience and do it really well. So there are some absolutely key tracks that I simply won't be able to do because um, they need more than one musician and, and I am just me. Um. And, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm doing a lot of experimenting with loop stations and stuff like that to sort of build sounds and, and things. And that's really exciting. But also it's, it's I cannot tell you how scary I, I, it is. I'm, I'm genuinely people will always say to me, are you scared before you go on stage? And the answer is always yes, but never as much as I will be on this tour.
0: Yes, you 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 won't be able to eat. Uh, so that's good. But coming, I mean, one thing that I've noticed actually as well with your career, you do fantastic cover versions, don't you? You you know, and you reinterpret them, interpretate them so well. And I'm always kind of you know, I think because the dead and dead or alive track is a bit bombastic, but your version of that is just beautiful, isn't it?
1: yeah I, you see I love doing cover versions, and people are always asking me to do Joni Mitchell cover versions and stuff like that but there's to me there's no point in in doing a cover version like of, of Joni mitchell because she's she's done the definitive version you can't do any it's not even about doing any better, but you can't, there's nothing new you can bring to a Joni Mitchell song, particularly as a woman. I think maybe a maybe a bloke could bring something new to a joni mitchell song, but so when I do a cover version, I always like to to know that I can bring something that is completely different to to it um so like that dead or alive song you know it's it's actually if the bones of the song was was so brilliantly written it's so brilliantly written and so simple but 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 so kind of um i don't know hypnotic that that uh that it was you know it, it kind of you could, I could hear where I wanted to take it, and and I love the original, but but I do also really love what we did with it as well. And like, I mean, I remember doing Cover Me, the the Springsteen yes, song, yes. and that again, you know, that's that's a very sort of big kind of bombastic. When he does it, it's very sort of excitable and air punching, and to just kind of strip it all down and bring it bring it slow it down, kind of you know change the tempo dramatically created something else. And I, I remember actually having a conversation with him about it where he was talking about it. And he said, well, actually, you know, I wrote that song for Donna Summer. I was never meant to do it. It was always meant in his head. And nobody knew that. I certainly right. didn't know at the time. He said in his head, it was always meant to be a woman singing it. And so all, when I did it and he heard what I did, he was like, suddenly it makes sense. And that was like, that's that was such a nice thing to hear from the person who wrote it. I was like, wow, that's, that's mega. That's amazing. Mm. And so, yeah, I've, it's always been this kind of, you take a song, and then what you know? What what can you do to kind of create something that that the original artist didn't? Yes, and well, it's interesting. Don't do it.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting with the journey Mitchell because she, I know, a few years ago, it's probably decades now, she redid some of her stuff, you kind know, of with a very melancholic sound with an orchestra and it was just like you know and and the lyrics obviously just sound so different but from a very wise person from the 18 year old and in a way she sort of covers her own stuff and yeah you know there's not much else you know to do with that but her work really because i mean she's sort of done it for everyone else actually and it's yeah it's i suppose what's really good and it's like cover me and and yeah and you spin Me around is just so good because you kind of go, oh God, I remember this song. And it, oh God, is. Yes. and it's so you know, it's it's just kind of brilliantly put together, actually. So, um, yes. And does that kind of mean? Because obviously, obviously, this is a bit simplistic, but I know that sort of following music kind of in a passionate way. There's there's you know the the kind of people like Annie DeFranco, and then we had all the Americana artists that came along, like Alison Krauss, and then Stacey Earl and Gillian Welsh. Do you sort of listen? I'm slightly sort of pushing you on into this one gender thing. Sorry about that. But do do you listen to those artists and get inspired yourself? You know, um, sort of thinking, oh, that's kind of interesting what people are doing, because you've obviously come from more slightly of a folk background, I think, than than that kind of Americana's background.
1: Well, you know, I always think of myself as coming from an American folk background, weirdly, which I suppose there's, you know there's not a huge division there's kind of maybe a cigarette paper between American folk and and Americana um it's so I think that the majority of English folkies the real sort of heavy hitters in English folk would probably very happily reject me completely and say she's got nothing to do with English folk and they're probably right you know I love English folk but it's not my it's not my skill set, it's not where my experience lies. My experience lies much more in a kind of like, younger folk music, which tends to be the American folk music, I guess. Um, so yeah, I'm always, I mean, Anita Franco was a huge influence on me when I was growing up. And funnily enough, I was actually thinking about her when you were talking about Joni Mitchell almost covering herself, because Anita Franco did exactly the same thing with the album, like I said, she took you know songs of hers and then and reinterpreted them. And it was a brilliant album, absolutely brilliant, brought something completely new to her own songs. Which is a great idea. Um, yeah, I'm I'm always looking. I mean, I mean, Gillian Welsh's Time the Revelator album, which yes. I know is old now. <laughs> My God, what I mean, you know, you could definitely die in peace, couldn't you, if you'd created a piece of work like that? Absolutely mm-hmm. extraordinary.
0: Yes. I mean, and does that mean that you, as a now a solo artist, because a lot of people often, you know, work with a sort of a bit of a p you know, a partnership. Do you have you sort of thought beyond the next couple of you know, like this year, as kind of having those kind of slight collaborations. I know David Bowie used to always talk about wanting he's Jeff Beck, and he had Mick Ronson, then he had Earl Slick and, and Garson, and then quite a few people have often just had somebody just to help them. And Gillian Welsh has got some person who works, you know, she works with. I just wondered if you quite enjoy that, or at the moment you just think, God, life's so much easier just on my own. I've just got myself to think about and what I'm going to do on the day.
1: I think at the moment I want to know what I'm capable of, um, and that's that's a really important uh, that's a really important um, thing that I need to figure out because after you know 23 years of doing things the same way, you you know arguably you get lazy. You know, I kind of you, you get lazy and you rely on somebody else to do things that you think, well, I maybe could push myself to do it, but that person will do it better anyway. So why bother? and I I don't want to be the why bother person. I want to know, can I do it? Of course you can do it. I can do mm-hmm. it. I'm, I'm a musical person. It won't be, you know, it won't be like I say virtuoso, but it will be what the song needs. And when I've found out enough about what I am capable of, then the idea of working with other people is, is wonderful. I mean, the, you know, music itself is a, community process it's a a collaborative process it always is even if you're a solo artist the collaboration comes from making something and then delivering it to an audience and that's a collaboration it's always Mm. about collaboration and community and so working with other musicians is is part and parcel of that and it's a brilliant process but I think that you can only do it honestly when you're fully aware of your own capabilities and your own strengths and weaknesses and I haven't got there yet I'm still a baby in that res- respect and I need I need to get myself to the point where I know what what I'm good at and what I enjoy doing before I can bring somebody else in to fully honestly work with them.
0: Yeah so it's going to be interesting if in 10 or 20 years time you look back and think this was the best thing that happened in your life it'd be like oh amazing wonder, you know like this is kind of going to have a quite a your adult life has got very much at the moment it's going to have two chapters isn't it very definite two chapters which is quite interesting so look last question if you could have said something to your 16 or 18 year old self starting out is there any kind of thing that you would have just wanted to whisper in their ear as like oh yeah they'd keep doing that or just check that out because that could be worthwhile i just wondered what wisdom or you know or sort of little bit of knowledge that you've got that you think yeah that would have been really handy
1: um, the thing, the thing about sixteen-year-old selves is they don't listen, do they? Ever? No, um, they don't. So, <laughs> but uh, I think if if I could have got my sixteen-year-old self to listen to me, it would have been just trust your gut. Right? You may be young, but your gut knows. Your gut's like ancient, and it knows a few things. So if something feels wrong, trust it. If some, if if there's something going on or somebody's saying something to you or telling you something about yourself or telling you something about the way things are and you think that's not right or it doesn't have to be that way surely trust it and fight yeah just fight if you can because it you can lose decades to um assuming that other people know better than you and generally speaking your gut's correct
0: and that, dear listener, is the end of the interview, apart from the goodbyes, which were very exciting. But you don't really need to hear them. So a massive thank you to Thea Gilmore for giving me the time for that interview. And as I said, and we've probably been talking about it in the interview, um, she's got two releases coming out this autumn after Light, which is coming out on the 17th of September. And also the other, um, the album by Thea Gilmore, which is going to be titled The Emancipation of Eva Gray. And uh, the tour is going to start on the 29th of September at Canterbury and then goes right through to the 10th of October, finishing in Cardiff. Anyway, a massive thank you. This has been David Eastall, the C86 Show. If you want to contact me for some really nice reason, make it positive, please. Otherwise, don't bother. You can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram just do C86 Show. And also, all these um, interviews have been archived. You can find those on Spotify iTunes or Podbeam. It's that easy. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.